it's time for another edition of Tennis.com's weekly podcast. And here's your host, James Martin. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. The uh, big news this week, obviously, is Justine Hennon and Kim Kleisters. All I have to say is the WTA Tour guys uh, should take these two girls out for dinner. It's the most exciting women's match, at least in my opinion, that we've gotten probably in the last 12 months on women's tennis. Uh, I'm James Martin, and I'm joined with Steve Tigner and Pete Bodo. And guys, you know, for my money, this was a uh, it was a nervy affair, up and down. Both players had a chance to close it out, didn't do the didn't do it. But overall, I thought that the quality of tennis was very good and better than what we've seen uh, for a long time. Exciting as well, drama, basically had everything you wanted in a tennis match. Um, you know, what what do you guys think? I I was disappointed that Hennon didn't uh, ultimately win that match because I thought it would have been uh, really uh, a great uh, win for her the way she came back in that second set. I agree. I thought it was a great match, and I feel like the WTA got its top tier back. That's you know that's the way it looked. There wasn't as much there wasn't as much um, double faulting. There, each player was nervous, and you know it wasn't perfect. Uh, Kim gave away a lead, but there wasn't this sense that everything is falling apart, which is what we've gotten used to on you know, with women's tennis recently. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. I know Pete, you came away maybe not feeling as strongly about the quality of tennis, right? I mean, I thought well, it was. I, I thought know, Steve was right, but. You're you're kind of a little bit turning a, a, a sow's ear into a purse here, I think. You know, I mean, I mean, look, I mean, Kim Kleister is against a woman who's coming back to the tour. Now, granted, not that Kim's been around forever either. Again, you know, but she's got a set and a four-one lead, two breaks. I mean, the only you know the only excuse for losing that match is if the girl goes absolutely on fire and starts hitting stone cold winners left and right. That didn't happen. I mean, you know, I hate to be the player hater in this, but uh, you know, player hater, player hater. You know me. <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, no, I, w- I was kind of disappointed, frankly, by that. It's kind of like the same old, same old. Uh, the more things change, the more they remain the same. Kim's, like, you know, gets shaky against Justine. Justine, you know, sort of uh, gets back into the match. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in sort of Chapter 2 of this rivalry. I mean, I think you have to look at it to Steve's point, which was that, yeah, I, I agree. That it was nervy and it was up and down. But it wasn't like the collapses we'd seen over the last year where, you know, someone would double fault 20 times or – that they couldn't meet, they couldn't find the court. But l- let's talk a minute about Hennon's. You know, there's been a lot about her new game, the, the tweaks she's done. And this is the first time I really got a good chance to watch a full match with her. And obviously, she's going more for her serve. She was hitting her first serve seemingly a bit harder than usual, and her second had a few double faults there. Her forehand, a little simpler motion in the take back, and trying to come to net. And I was kind of left looking at this and saying, well, her instincts at net. She tried to get there here and there. But she ended up in a no man's land a bit, hitting half volleys, and still didn't look really. It's a work in progress to me when I saw that. And against the elite players like a Kleisters, I think this new and improved Justine Hennon is going to take a lot longer to evolve. I mean, what do you think, Steve? There was definitely rust there. She had trouble keeping up with Kim when the rallies really got fast paced on her backhand, which she normally didn't have trouble with. She had trouble with uh touch shots around the net like you said and she didn't really I didn't get the feeling she was really trying to get to the net that much she was trying to flatten out her serve which she has she has a new toss and she's hitting it harder than she than she did in the past and she also has tried to shorten her forehand which I think is probably a long term to try to keep up with the pace of today's game keep up with the pace with the Williams sisters in particular but um I thought it was 
match. It was a very good match for her first tournament back. Well, I mean, I'll give Justine a pass on a rust issue. Sure, you know, she's got, and she's got a, she plays a pretty razor edge kind of a game. So, yeah, she's going to take her a little bit, of, uh, you know, a little bit of time to get herself back into shape. So, you know, you don't want to be too harsh about that. I mean, you know, really, it was, you know, it's really Kim who was a little bit more disappointing there because basically, you know, uh, she was in a position to crush the girl with no questions asked. I mean, I think Justine, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, this, you know, uh, you, you can. You, you look at that serve and you say, well, what's she going to get a couple more miles an hour out of it? Well, that actually may help her opponents because we know how, how big the return is these days in a women's game. And uh, as Melanie Udan's po- coach pointed out at the U.S. Open, you know, there's a point at which, you know, there's kind of a sweet spot for returners of, you know, you know serves, you know, between, you know, 85, 90, 105 miles an hour or something like that. That's really nice. That really tees the ball up beautifully for a returner. You're almost better off serving at 60 miles an hour or, you know, getting it uh, up into that Venus and – Serena Williams territory where you're really cranking the ball and putting women under pressure. So I don't know. The, you know, the tweaks and changes, I, 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 I don't think Justine is going to be a, a very different player from what she was. The really disappointing thing to me, of course, was we've now got the injury narrative, you know, popping up again. And let's remember, there's a girl who quit in the middle of a final with a tummy ache. So, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, to be fair, though, she, she, got, she, 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 she played the match out. She just said afterwards she's exhausted. She's not going to play Sydney just because she felt like, you know, what uh, she wants to be 100%. For Australia, although I know what you're saying that you know she she does have a track record of of using injuries and such uh, as motivation or excuses. What do you guys think it it means for Kim going forward? I know last week we talked about how she was going to be looser this year; she was going to have less to lose. But that from this match, that that clearly isn't true. Or at least it was not true against Justine. She she tightened up, but at the same time, I felt like the match was on her racket. She she was really good, and then she wasn't good, and then she was really good again, and that's how the match went. It, it went with her, with what she did, rather than with what Justine did. I, I agree with that. I mean, I, I was watching and thinking back to what Pete said, you know, last week where, you know, it, this could be a massive year for Kleisters. Um, you know, she did show the nerves, and it was kind of the old Kleisters in that match, you know, giving up eight straight games in the second and third sets, and, and it was just not closing it up and getting nervy, but watching her play and the consistency and depth that she has – um, no, no one can match that right right now. I don't think. I mean, Serena can come close, but she's not going to have the consistency, even though she has the power and the depth. Um, I don't know anyone else that comes close to Kleister's right now, Pete. Yeah, that physicality of Kleister's, I think, is, is going to be a big asset for her. I mean, you know, you can kind of cut her a break on this one because, you know, it is kind of spooky. Here's a woman who kind of, you know, wrecked your life the first time around to be dramatic about it uh, since we're talking about Justine. And it's all, it's always, there's always some kind of drama when you're talking about Justine. But, but really, you know, Kim. You know, she's, you know, she goes out there and she's playing a woman who kind of, you know, stole her thunder and was her big rival, you know, kept her, kept Kim as number two in Belgium. And especially when she had, you know, that great run there right before she retired, you know, um, you know, Hennen really, you know, sort of pulled out ahead of them. So you could see where, you know, Kim Kleister's really kind of maybe was a little bit tight in that match. And, you know, I, I think it's a big win for her. You know, I think maybe next time she goes out and says, okay, now I see what, what, what Justine's got. You know, she didn't, she didn't disappear and come back with an entirely reconstructed game that's going to present new problems for me. So uh, I still think it looks good for her, although it really is kind of disappointing that she didn't play a mentally tougher match. Yeah, but, I, you know, I come away that I watched the match with my wife, and the thing that I think is most important of that match was that, you know, you had someone to root for again. I mean, you know, Hennen, whether you like her or not, and she, she definitely has detractors that don't like her mentality and some of the things she does. But just watching that, I felt like you had a clear interest to root for one or the other. And just seeing the, from an aesthetic point of view, seeing Hennen with the slice, that forehand, some of those cross-court forehand winners she was hitting on the other side with Kleisters and, and just the, 
incredible gritty, consistent uh, depth of her ground strokes. I, I thought the match, just from a pure tennis standpoint, just gave me something to really enjoy. I knew the score going into it because Tennis Channel was showing it on delay, and I still enjoyed the match, which is a rare thing for me. I mean, what, what do you think, Steve? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I wouldn't call it the greatest match in women's tennis history, but that actually is what Andy Roddick said today. He said he's never seen women play better tennis. I don't know how much he's been watching, but um, that's something to be said for that. Yeah, no, I don't know how much Roddick's watching either, but it definitely was a highlight and uh, can only hope for more of that in Australia and see what happens between those two. I'm sure they probably don't want to have to face each other again in Melbourne in a couple weeks, but uh, it would be great to see those those two players facing off. But with Hennon as a wild card, you don't know where that could happen. So it could be a first round, first week encounter or a second week. Um, and let's move on to the other big news, which uh, happily Pete Bodo here broke on Tennis.com last week. And that is the news that Andy Roddick and James Blake have both taken a pass on Davis Cup this year. Um, I guess maybe people might, people might be surprised, people might not. But Pete, why don't you uh, give us a little insight into the story you broke and uh, where those two guys' heads are as far as pulling out. Well, this has been an ongoing discussion on a Davis Cup squad, you know, for, for a couple of months now. Is Andy or is he not going to play? And, of course, at Wimbledon, you know, he did not go to Croatia after Wimbledon there because uh, he was, you know, just too beat up from that final with Federer. So, you know, I think, you know, Andy kind of was reevaluating what he really wanted to do. I think when you look at that draw that we had potentially for this year, it was, you know, sort of made it seem like, well, gee, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it's not a bad year to take a pass on this, you know, uh, and, you know, there is that issue of Andy's knee. And, you know, he's had a couple of little breakdowns here and there recently. So I think if, if you're going to cut something from your schedule, this would, isn't a bad year for him to cut Davis Cup. But what was kind of interesting to me now is that, uh, you know, when he first made his public comment after we published our story and down in Australia, uh, the thing he talked about, you know, the thing he emphasized what he, was, was not that he wasn't playing Davis Cup, but that he wasn't retiring from Davis Cup. So that's kind of a, you know, that kind of opens a door for, you know, maybe, you know, hey, if, you know, if we lose this next round, you know, we may have to play a relegation against Serbia. We may have to play a, a relegation round in September. And, uh, you know, then you got to wonder if Andy and James are going to be available for that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to ever criticize Andy Roddick uh, for not showing, uh, you know, support for his country and playing Davis Cup. He's been there for so many years now and, and won it for the country, unlike, you know, Roger Federer, who gets a lot of stick for not competing in the event, certainly in the opening rounds when, when they need him most. Um, but, I, what, Steve, what do you think as far as how this is going to affect the U.S. team? I mean, losing Blake isn't such a big blow for the U.S. team because, let's face it, Blake has not performed well in Davis Cup recently. So I don't think that is, you know, catastrophic. So Sam Query can certainly fill in, I think, quite capably there. But Roddick has always been one of the anchors along with the Bryan brothers. So this potentially opens up problems not just short-term with Serbia in March on clay likely and, and a tough tie that they probably will lose, but also going forward for relegation battles and that kind of thing. Yeah, for this year it's going to be a struggle. They, they're looking like serious underdogs against Serbia on clay. Djokovic, Tipsarevic versus Query and most likely Marty Fish. That doesn't that doesn't bode well. And then we'll see what happens in the relegation round. That they could be very very evenly matched with another team there as well. Um, but as far as Andy Roddick not playing, I think people we forget that with with a team like the U.S. where it's so dependent on one player, for him to commit just like just like with Federer, for him to commit to one tie means committing to four to playing all four. You know that somebody like Rafael Nadal doesn't have to do that. And uh, Roddick is probably, I know he also decided he didn't want to play, he didn't want to switch surfaces from hard to clay and back to hard. And he also probably thought, it, you know, committing to four ties in another season at, 
at his age, or you know, his age, twenty six, whatever, twenty seven, uh, was was too much for him to think about as far as the whole year. Here's yeah. something interesting for you guys uh, that I found out. I mean, I don't know if maybe everybody does know this, but I didn't. Uh, you know, when you play your relegation round, you do, you do not play against another team, another one of the eight teams that's in a relegation round. So, in other words, you don't play against another team that's just been up in a world group. So that's kind of bodes well for relegation ties for you know for us. No, it is hard to go down if you have a certain amount of talent for sure. And on this, on an aside on all this. Obviously, a lot of players have come out recently saying they're not really going to play Davis Cup, um, at least for the first tie. We know Federer's not. Murray's not. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's, you know, I thought Murray's was probably the weakest of the of the excuses t- telling the media that he wants to give uh, the Davis Cup experience, give that give that chance to the young guys in Britain, the up-and-comers. And I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> who's up-and-coming in Britain that he's he's sort of ceding the throne to? And I thought that was kind of weak that he, he pulled out, but yet yeah, can represent his country in Hopman Cup. So I was disappointed there and, and continue to be disappointed that Federer, particularly now and at, at this stage of his career where he, he's done everything else, this is one of two accomplishments he really needs for the complete resume, this in the Olympics, that he, that he pulled out. This does seem to be a template that Federer set that, that Murray's picking up on that, okay, me, one guy carrying a team through an entire year, the thought of doing that, that's, that's just not something I'm going to do because I have other things I want to, I want to do. And whether, whatever you think of that, that, that seems, that's their attitude about it. They, you know, they, they play on teams where they're absolutely necessary for probably for singles and doubles. Yeah, but at least Federer has a shot. I mean, you know, let's be realistic. I mean, Federer, Federer Vavrinka as a Davis Cup doubles core of the Davis Cup doubles team is a really powerful squad. I mean, these guys are just blowing a big chance to, to win the Davis Cup. And that, that, I think, is, to my mind, kind of unforgivable. I mean, Murray's situation, I really kind of understand a little more. I mean, you know, they may as well get, like, the guitarist from Oasis to be the number two man, or or maybe he's the guy Andy wants to push out there for the, to get all this experience. But, uh, you know, I, it's kind of a pity, and it's kind of ironic, because Davis Cup is traditionally in the open era meant so much more to other nations and you know it's just huge you know almost everywhere else including big tennis powers like france and and in germany italy places like that serbia now and you know now and now the trend seems to be that the americans are actually stepping up and committing to davis cup and you know and the europeans who kind of have have it all right there on their plates and they've you know they've got all the publicity for it the, the public loves it and the other ones are kind of bailing on it it's really kind of kind of a shame it's disappointing in Federer's case I think because I, I think we all thought once he broke the Grand Slam record then he would take a, a shot at Davis Cup but he still decided that that's you know that's too much yeah it's quite bizarre like the first ties in March so <clears throat> if you go by the re- rationale that a lot of these players don't play that well I don't want to play Davis Cup because it's gonna it's gonna hurt my chances at a master series or an upcoming Grand Slam I mean there's nothing going on in March or April, or really in the end of May for Grand Slam. So Federer plays the first round of Davis Cup, and what, he's, he's worried that he might not be fresh for Indian Wells or Miami? I mean, does he really care if he wins those tournaments at this stage of his career versus winning a Davis Cup? It, it seems bizarre to me. Well, that's 100% right. I think they're also, I just don't understand his reasoning. So let me get this right. He's going to play a relegation tie that's become his habit to keep Switzerland in a world group, but then he's not going to play Davis Cup so that Switzerland could lose in the yeah, next it's a first cycle, round again yeah. and get him into a relegation. Well, I mean, if the guy wants to have a record as the best relegation cup, relegation round player ever, more power to him. He's well on his way, but you kind of expect more of Roger Federer. That is true, and uh, we'll be talking a lot about Roger Federer uh, in another week, we got the Australian Open coming up, and uh, we want to ask everybody to uh, 
Stay tuned. We'll be doing a preview of the Australian Open once the draws are announced. So uh, join us again then, and then we'll be joining you throughout the U.S. Uh, excuse me, the Australian Open. I'm getting my ears confused here, and uh, we will uh, break down all the action throughout the first and second weeks. So uh, join us again for Steve Tigner and Peter Bodo. I'm James Martin. Thanks a lot. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to tennis.com.